On today's episode, we have someone who works to provide a voice for the disenfranchised people who feel voiceless. She fights for those who are disconnected from the democratic system, homeless, and those not engaged through traditional outreach. Let's start the week with Leilani Irving. Leilani, welcome to the show. How do you Thank feel? you for having me. Are you going to have like round of applause, special effects? Yeah, yeah, I, I could, I could work on that. I probably won't, but, but I, theoretically, I could. <laughs> Welcome. Thanks for joining well, us. Thank today. you for having me. I'm oh, happy to be here. Of course, I'm honored um, to be here on your platform. Oh, stop it! Stop it! I'm just glad that you were able yeah, to no, time really, out, really, take time good. out of your busy schedule. Stop. Stop it. Wait, no, I've been seeing your podcast trending all over my threads, feeds. I'm like, oh, stop. Wow. (laughs) And all the guest speakers, I'm like, am I good enough to be in this space with? Like, your previous guest speakers were just so bomb. All right, that's what we're now going to do. You you still talk to me like we're 16, Leilani, and I love it. (laughs) All right, let's jump right into it. What do you do for a living, Leilani? (laughs) <laughs> so okay let me be seriously lani mm-hmm. i work for a city agency i'm the manhattan borough director for the department of social services i don't have anyone under me or a team or anything like that I'm just one borough director that covers mm-hmm. the whole borough of manhattan and so i'm tasked with and it's intergovernmental affairs so I'm the IGA for the agency. So I, I deal with street homeless matters in the borough. There are any, you know, inquiries coming in from community members about an individual bedding down or encampments. Those those are issues that get escalated to me and my unit. Um, mm-hmm. And then we, you know, we try to resolve it. I also notify on shelters that are opening up in communities. I'm the one that comes with the news, the notification. Essentially, I'm just a liaison, a vessel between community, elected officials, and the agency. So any and all issues that relates to the issue of homelessness, I'm the messenger. I'm the voice for our client. I'm the voice for any policies and initiatives coming out of the agency to the borough of Manhattan. Wow. That's pretty similar to what I do, right? So I do also intergovernmental affairs uh, for the Economic Development Corporation. So I'm very familiar uh, with your work. I know homelessness is a very uh, sensitive issue and it is a very serious issue um, and one that different communities, even when you look at a place like Manhattan, which is such a large borough, different communities receive that differently, right? Or encounter homelessness differently. So you're tasked with Absolutely. Uh, a pretty big undertaking here. Absolutely. Uh-huh. The fact that you even laid that dynamic out so well is so, that's the, it's accurate, right? Yeah, every community district is different. Um, like yeah. I'm born and raised in Harlem. And so I've seen poverty. I've seen street homeless individuals bedding down from a child to present. And so to grow up seeing that, the response from community looks different in areas where they're not accustomed to maybe seeing street homeless New Yorkers or not accustomed to having a shelter nearby in their neighborhood. And so their responses oftentimes are very different. And like my job is to, for those areas and those communities that's not accustomed to, you know, interacting 
with our clients as often as someone like me who grew up with seeing it and being, you know, interacting with individuals on a day-to-day basis. Some I, some I even know on a personal level yeah. in my community, but my job is to educate. My, mm. my job is to, to educate and explain the reality of how we got here and what it means. Uh, anybody can be a check away from being homeless, an illness away from being homeless. Like there's a real stigma attached to the issue and my, my job and what I take pleasure in doing is undressing it, you know, for yeah. people and really get into the root of why we're here and, and how we all have a civic duty and responsibility in supporting those most vulnerable New Yorkers, wow. whether that's it's awesome. in our backyard or not. Absolutely. And I think that's part of, I think your challenge, right? Which is, I think most people would say that they want to solve homelessness. I think many communities would argue just not in their backyard. <laughs> so it's, mm-hmm. yes, let's solve homelessness, but don't put a shelter near my home. Yes, let's solve homelessness, right. but don't have any programs that um, address this population near my school. So it's, or near my child's right. school, right? Like it's a very tricky right endeavor because it's something that I think most people would clearly say this is, you know, we need to do everything we possibly can, but I could imagine your Mm -hmm. role being difficult because most people are not receptive to the solutions that are put in place in their community. Oh, 100%. Right. 100%. And, and again, it goes back to just these stigmas, these, yeah, the things I hear. It's uh, some oftentimes troubling because, you know, I am a black woman doing this work and the, the reality of the clients that we service look like me overwhelmingly in the system. So when I'm speaking on behalf and even those who don't look like me, it's just like the issues, what our clients have to deal with, the systemic barriers. Those are very real realities to me and things that are relatable to me. And so it's personal, the work, which I think is good that, you know. It's good for folks to hire people who reflect the community and people who have a good grasp and understanding of these issues because it's helpful to speak from a place of not just like empathy, but also having the ability to kind of narrate and articulate the issues in a way that different communities who've maybe never been exposed to this can receive it and hear you. And I feel like I do, I, I take like pride out of like, getting through to people, cutting through their bias, cutting through their lack of knowing and really bringing a human face and voice to the issue. So I think like just being passionate about the issue, the work shines through in these spaces with communities. And and when we have those tough dialogues, I'm going to be honest, I mean, not everybody walks away. Well, I was like, you know, like now I have an understanding and, and now I feel okay. Not everybody walks away like that, but you know, I feel like if I can shift one person's perspective or two and kind of calm the conversation down and bring it back to a human reality-based conversation, then I feel like there's a victory. Okay. All right. So let's backtrack. So growing up in Harlem, is this the type of role you always wanted to do? No, actually. Like growing up in Harlem, you know, ah. Harlem is just like, it's the Mecca. It's the capital of New York City, in fact, for those who don't know. Mm. In my head as a kid, that's what I used to think, that Harlem is that big. 
And um, I think I think Harlem is world renowned as Harlem, USA. So I think that's a real thing. I love Harlem. Like, who doesn't love Harlem? But Harlem is like arts, culture, soul. And so that's how I grew up. I grew up in a very artsy environment. You know, my, my great-grandfather was an, a famous actor. His name is Canada Lee. And he's like one of the first Blacks to play a role in Hollywood. And I kind of grew up with those elements in my life. And so, and he lived his families, his families who migrated to Harlem in like the 20s. And they were part of the Renaissance movement. And he was like a civil rights activist during time period. And so artistry and activism always went hand in hand in my mind. Uh, but I just never, I guess, as a child viewed it that way, you know, that art is a form of expression. And, you know, if you look today, all of our entertainers who are using their platform to speak out for power of good and, and promoting, you know, civic awareness, that exposed to in Harlem. And so, no, I think I was more focused on the art component as a child than I was on the advocacy portion, although that was okay. always in me. If you remember me in class, Raddy, I was always a little... <laughs> Animated? Like vocal? <laughs> yeah, animated <laughs> is what I would call you. But yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that was, I mean. I like that. It was, was very animated. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, and for those that don't know, you know, so we go back to like high school days. So I just want to make sure that folks know, like I'm talking to someone that I've known since I was 15 years old, right? So, so I, I do know your animated yes. times. Shout, shout out to Frederick Douglass Academy. But there is where I learned that I had a little advocacy in me. As a child growing up in Harlem, I was, in, you know, a violinist, a dancer, uh, and I took on acting. So, you know, mm. I did two films. I did one with Meryl Streep and Angela Bassett in middle school, and then another with Ben Affleck. And I did a Broadway, um, a Lincoln Center, uh, City Opera, Corgi and Bess when I was, this is all in elementary school. So as a child with that type of exposure and entertainment, I thought that that was my route. I thought that was my calling, acting, mm. theater, dance, music, because those were really big moments in my, in my life. However, you know, I ended up, I landed in Frederick Douglass Academy School where I met you uh, yeah. and other great young leaders who are doing amazing things. Our class, I'm so proud of everyone. They're doing really great in this world. Because FDA grooms critical thinkers and leaders, in my opinion. Absolutely. But in that, yeah, in that space is kind of where I tapped into the advocacy. I'm a leader. Yeah. So transitioning from, you know, being exposed to doing big films with directors like Wes Craven and like meeting him and meeting like stars like Angela Bassett and like you couldn't tell me that that wasn't my calling my future like I'm gonna be the next big actress and um, that was in my mind what I thought that I was called to do and so I couldn't see anything else ever happening like arts theater performance entertainment that was what I thought I was that was gonna be me in the future this big star you know and then I just transitioned to a school, uh, Frederick Douglass Academy, well, let me backtrack, my elementary school was a school that had like a Montessori approach to how they educated children. And I went to a school called Central Park East. It's an elementary school in East Harlem. 
What does that mean? Montessori. Yeah. It's like um, they have a different approach to educating children. It's not too technical. It's not textbook. Like it's very like you learn through projects. You learn through, you know, if it's a math assignment, then their assignment for you is you're doing some kind of project that might relate to something outdoors and constructing something that involves measuring. And uh, it's, uh, it's just, you know, uh, if there was a lot of the work was through research and expression and writing, it's it's a different form of like the way they educate children. I'm sure someone who listens to this is like, that's not the, it's not the best definition of Montessori Leilani, but it's just a whole different holistic approach to teaching and educating children. We were like um, cooking, we were cooking. Uh, I was a baker. I was baking, measuring and like, first grade, sewing, doing things that your average first grader, second grader wouldn't be doing. And so in that type of environment, that was a very holistic, warm environment is where I thrived creatively. And so to transition from that type of school to go to Frederick Douglass Academy, which was a complete 180. It was a complete 180. We had to memorize a syllabus. You had to wear a uniform. It was so structured. Yeah. It was, and so, but I was always very vocal and I had, I was in a child that was very expressive. So I didn't really know how to, how to manage that in a school with so much structure. And I struggled, yeah. I struggled, but I found my way towards the end. But in being in that environment is where I like, okay, I have to be a lot more disciplined, but I still have to figure out a way to like get my point across or get my creativity out some, some way, somehow. Uh, and FDA had a dance program, Mr. Saab, shout out to Mr. Saab. And that was my, that was my space to be creative. That and many other things that ended up opening up for us as students at FDA is like I, that's where I learned to be an entrepreneur. Everybody had some type of hustle at that school, whether it was selling hot dogs, whether it was selling socks, Jack, whether it was selling honey buns, Jack, it was, or it was, and I'm saying Jack, cause it's a friend of ours who just used to have multiple different, uh, you know, gigs and, you know, ways that students, we tried to make money. We even had a store called the Gap yep. Store um, where kids could sell their merchandise of like, t-shirts that they designed or bracelets they designed and so it just kind of shifted my mental to think a lot more I guess um think more as like an entrepreneur uh, an entrepreneur and not even just as an entrepreneur but it just kind of made me it that school built me up to be a leader like it, it made me realize that like you can be creative but you need to be more constructive and effective with your end goal? What's your end point? Like, what, what point are you trying to make? Like, how can we help you structure that? How can we help you put all your greatness together and like execute? So I think I became a great executionist at that school. That's the tools that they gave us. And so, you know, at one point after FDA, after Frederick Douglass Academy, I really wanted to go to school for dance. I thought that I was going to go to SUNY Purchase or California School of Arts, but I always wanted to go to HBCU. So I ended up going to a historically black college, a historical black college called Benedict College, which is 
all the way in Columbia, South Carolina. Everyone's like, why did you choose that school? I chose that school because I had family that lived in South Carolina. So I knew I wanted to go away, but I also wanted to be near family. And like that was the only school in the state where I had family and I was really familiar with the state to a certain degree. We'll get there. But, you know, so I found myself there. And there is where it became very clear that I have a voice and that I would really lean into advocacy. You know, so my freshman year, 2007, you know, Barack Obama announced that he was going to run for president in the United States. Mm -hmm. And so in 2008, that was the trigger for me to get interested in politics. You know, so in that moment, he inspired me, not just me, but students. Obviously, none of us voted before we were 18. Uh, so this would be our first time voting. But it was some type of fire that ignited students across this country. Um, but in yep. particularly speaking, in the Deep South, it definitely motivated not just students, but elders, everyone. Um, hmm. And you know, we had the opportunity to meet him uh, on his campaign trail, all of the candidates, which was very interesting, all of the candidates passed up Benedict College. They didn't, we're a very small institution, very small school. And so we were, we kind of felt the way we felt slighted, like, you know, wow. So no one's going to come to us. They're going to the school up the street, USC, because it's a big name. You know, we're a very small historical black college, along with Allen University, who was next door. Everyone looked over us. One thing about him, though, and his campaign team, they took no ground for granted. So they made a pit stop everywhere. And what they did was inspired like thousands of students. Um, and what we did was we just we literally lent ourselves and our time to do everything that we can to ensure everyone was registered to vote, got out to vote. It was an all hands on deck experience. It, I never you know, would wish that all elections could feel like that moment unfortunately but you know we were blessed to meet him and he he sat down he talked to us we asked real questions about like you know one of the questions that stood out to me was like are you not afraid to you know you're a black man what if what are you afraid about you know possibly getting hurt as you go for this big seat and he didn't respond michelle responded and Michelle said, like, he's a black man in America. Like, he can get shot walking down the block, walking down the street. And, like, that response was, like. Wow. Yeah. Because yeah. wow. that's very real. Absolutely. And I didn't expect for them to give such a raw response. But that type yeah. of realness and that type of um, connection that they were able to make with. Americans across this country is where I saw myself in politics. I've said to myself, mm. like, I can be a part of this. Like, if I can talk off the cuff and be real with people in this way in a space in politics, then it is possible to be, you know, heard and seen in this arena or in this space uh, where we need to be represented um, the most. This is you at like 18 years old. Wow. Yeah. Empowering. <laughs> I can see how seeing yeah. of all elected officials, you know, I think there's there's value to everyone, right? But I think there was something special around that time. 
especially, you know, I was also a freshman in college around that time and like seeing, okay, my first opportunity to vote for president is going to be for Barack. Like that, there was something special. It was like really lightning in the bottle at that time to think that we were going to be part of that movement. Um, but to hear him speak and to hear him and Michelle uh, Obama come in and speak to your school, which you would, as you mentioned, right, you would have thought they could have easily skipped on the trail, right, um, and gone to, lar- to larger schools. But them stopping had a big impact. It's super motivating to hear that, you know, these seemingly smaller moments can have a real impact in the way that we shape our lives and careers, right? Right. One thousand percent. Like, I don't even think they realized their presence sparked so many other students to be on this path that we're on. One thing I I feel, just given where we are in the state, in this country, one thing that was alarming to me was going to school in South Carolina. I was presented with all types of experiences of racism, and I think I wasn't downloading it as racism right away. Does that make sense? Like I would have encounters where we were told like, you know, we're waiting in a restaurant. I won't mention the establishment, but we were waiting in a popular chain restaurant to be served and like hours and hours are going by and we realized like, I don't think that they're going to serve us. And so I asked to speak with a manager and they were like, well, serve yourself. Um, Like immediately I'm like, I'm going to talk to corporate. I'm going to talk to your head manager. But that was, you know, we looked around and, you know, those types of encounters kept happening. Wow. Uh, yeah, we will we'll sit somewhere and not get served. Wow. Wasn't registering. Like, why, why are we not served? And then when you, we complained, they'd be like, well, if you don't like it, leave. Or, you know, we're I talking 2007. Know. We're talking 2007, right. 2008. This is 2007. Girl from Harlem. Yeah. So I'm like, wow. What's going on here? So, you know, um, also, you know, just dealing with that and then being inspired by, you know, at the time, possibly the first African-American male president to to ever, you know, run for office or like secure the seat, Uh, not run for office, but to secure the seat and win. At the door sound, it was such a, a negative responses. You know, Mm. negative responses at the doors is when I realized, and this is a very, very real reality, and this goes into voter suppression. In the South, many of the individuals who were a part of the civil rights movement, I've met a lot of elders at the doors who were acting like they were afraid to to participate in voting. And I'd ask them, like, well, well, hold on, like, can I ask your age? And, like, so you were present in Georgia around this time and actually had one elder tell me, like, yeah, that's why we, you know, my husband was hosed in the head. She pushed the door. Her husband was in a wheelchair and he looked like he had Parkinson's disease, like he was shaking. She was telling me she's in her 90s. She was like, you know, he shakes like that because he was hosed in his head for hours. Um, You know, she was like, you know, we don't do that. We don't. We don't vote. But voter suppression is very real in the South. It's very real, you know, that folks have been threatened, you know, intimidated. There's been moments where we had, we had, you know, knocking on in the wrong community, you know, 
we should maybe have been outreaching in this community, but we've had glass bottles thrown at us for being for knocking on someone's door who talking about voting for a black man, get off my get off my porch, you know, with this nonsense. So so those types of experiences also like fueled me to like this is really happening and like this is still like I guess living in New York City, racism does exist everywhere. I would say the difference between North and the South, the South is in your face. And maybe up North is institutionally hidden. Yeah. Right. I think that coupled with you growing up in Harlem and like me growing up in Washington Heights, going to high school in Harlem, like we were always surrounded by people of color. Right. That's that's not always the case when you go elsewhere outside of New York City, where it's like, no, this is who lives in this community. Now you go to another community if you want to see other people. Like right. it's a much different experience than living in New York, or at least in Northern Manhattan, right? We're like, Absolutely. okay, we're going to, all of the people that we're going to go to school with, we're going to hang out with, look like us, embrace us. And it is what it is. Right. There's no, there's no distinguishing factor there. But once right. you leave the city, you realize, oh, that that's not the case here. If I go to the mall right. here, that's a much different experience than the mall on another side of town. Right. Had friends who drove into a town which I never learned about what sundown towns are. Yeah, yeah. But some people don't know that's a real thing. You know, drove into a town and, you know, a woman ran to the car like, you obviously are in the wrong area. You need to turn this car around immediately because you won't make it out. (laughs) So these are like, you know, phenomena that you're going through and you're, (laughs) you're like, what and also being from new york it's always that little edge of like i wish i wish yeah. you <laughs> i wish you would yeah 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 but then you fast forward and see sandra bland and then you fast forward and see these moments play out where you're like that could have been me like i try to go home or get pulled over by the way when obama ran when he won when obama won the climate in the south shifted. Folks were getting pulled over a lot more. I lived across the street at the time from what I didn't know was a was a Ku Klux Klan headquarters. Like they I wouldn't say their headquarters, but it was one of their chapters, one of their chapter wow. homes. And it seems like the the participation of them, the like I lived there for like two years. So I never saw any until when Obama won, it's like where all these cars, why all these cars spilled out? what is this house? I remember I asked someone in the area, like, what's going on over there? Like, why is it always, I see white men, like, I see lots of cars, like, what is this? And I was told that that was one of their, one of their chapter houses. And so, yeah. And I can go on and on about encounters. Yeah. So at the time, so you're in school and having these experiences and seeing Obama on his trail, and all these things shape kind of how you wanted to move forward. What was your major at the time, though? Like, what were you actually studying um, and trying to be prior to, to receiving all these experiences? Good, good question. Initially, I went in as a mass communication broadcasting major. Um, and I thought that I would be a news anchor, a news reporter. That was the vision at that moment in time. I'm like, all right, I'm not doing dance. I'm not acting. But something aligned in entertainment. 
obviously I, I like I like talking, speaking, but all on issues that matter to me. Went through the book of majors and I was like, yeah, I think this is more me. Then Obama ran and I was like, yep, political science, <laughs> switch majors. So wow. I, have a, I have a minor in mass communication broadcasting. My, my major mm-hmm. discipline is in political science. So what, what was your thought process there from switching to political science? Like, what did you envision yourself doing at the time with that? Yeah, like a hindsight, looking back, like, did I really need to do that? I didn't need to do that. But I, I was so in the trenches and I felt like I needed to understand how this democracy works. I needed to understand thoroughly what I'm involved in, the functions of government, how it works from state to state, different, you know, like it's like I needed to have that knowledge. So I was just like, I'm doing this work whether it be me campaigning for the president or campaigning locally for city councilmen or women or mayors in this respective district where I'm going to school, I need to understand it. And so I switched majors because uh, I thought that would help, help give me more knowledge and more insight to what it was I was a part of or walking into. Got it. Okay. How was that transition into that? Was that seamless or was it? a big shocker coming from your communications background. But what was interesting was the discovery of, wow, all of this is built off man's theory. Like there was a lot of theories mm-hmm. and it just, yeah. I didn't realize that that's, that's kind of really what it is. Like someone comes up with an idea, sells you on it. It becomes law. It becomes like, it becomes a policy. Yeah. It's like, wow, I didn't realize you can do that with the ideas. It's who's more convincing, at least like when you look at Darwin and you look at all the different like, you know, yeah. folks who we point back in history and say, you know, this is how government unfolded. And here were the thinkers of the time. It's like, wow. So these people are who formed, OK, our democracy today. And yeah. when you look at that, you're like, how many of us were a part of that discussion. Now, yeah. now it makes sense, you know, why things are the way they are. Mm. We weren't part of shaping any any of these policies, any any of these laws. I never looked at politics and government in that way. Yeah, which is also weird that you have to be able to get to college to <laughs> then major in this just to learn more about your own government and how it functions and how we got here, right? Like, sure, we get history courses throughout high school, whatever, but to really understand and grasp these these concepts, you have to be, like, a major in college to get all that, that, which is intuitively doesn't make sense to me because, like, in theory, you would want to raise aware citizens that understand history, how we got here, what we're doing to move forward. (laughs) <laughs> right. But that's just not how it plays out. And we went to a pretty good high school, right? Like, yeah, I was getting ready we to We went say. to a really good high school where we learned a lot more we than did. a lot of my peers in other high schools. That's just a fact, right? Like right. we learned a lot of history that's not taught in other high schools, um, a lot of every subject that was that's not taught in other high schools. So then I, to then get to college and feel like you're still learning about how this particular country works is like mind blowing to me. The thing is, right, you're 100% right. Like, because in FDA, I mean, I also went to the junior high school. So I started in FDA in seventh grade, where we was doing PSATs in seventh, in sixth and seventh grade, learning Latin, learning Japanese, and 
Mr. Lawrence was one of our global studies teachers, and we were learning about Hatshepsut and Egypt and the blood, royal bloodline of Ra and like things that like other schools wouldn't be teaching you. You know, and then mm-hmm. now fast forward to high school, we did learn these things. You know, it's different when you apply the knowledge in real time, I right. think. Yeah, coupled with your political awareness that comes at the time, right? Which is like, okay, now I get to live these experiences and then right. learn some concepts as to how we got here and right. maybe some things I could change about it. Right. Got it. Okay. All right. So let's let's walk through college. So you got to, you're about to graduate college, you're a senior, and in your mind you're like, all right, I'm gonna go help someone with their campaign or work at a elected official's office or something of that nature? Or what are you thinking at that time? I was thinking that, well, one thing I noticed in the South was I did not see any woman in power in government. And to be specific, like, it was, it's still somewhat, I think it's a di- they're in a different place now. But like, they just got their first Black mayor a couple years ago there weren't that many there's not that many black elected officials in the south is somewhat challenging at least when i was in school I'm, i'm pretty sure the landscape looks different now but when i was in school that was the case and i saw no woman no woman in leadership so you know all of the skills and knowledge that I picked up, and whether it was me campaigning in Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and just being exposed to politics, I was like, I need to take this knowledge and also understand that, like, I'm skipping chapters, but I'm also empowering my campus. There were a lot of students we empowered. There were a lot of students who did not care anything about politics, but we were so determined to make you care. So we did a lot of non-traditional civic engagement events on campus. Like if we could plug in Rick Ross coming, performing, and then like right before the performance, we're talking about voting or importance of the functions of government. Like we inserted it everywhere we could on the yard. And we, I could see the impact. So to see how I was, not just me, I, I mean, me and my peers were able to make impact we that was such a uh, I felt so powerful. Like I have the ability to impact. I have the mm. ability to make shifts. So if I was able to do this, let me take my little self back home to Harlem and do this very same thing in my community. And so, you know, I packed up everything in my car, drove back home to New York City, and I just thought that. It would be smooth sailing, like my transition into government and working for this in politics. It'd be one, two, three. There's one, two, three here in college. It should wrong, <laughs> wrong. It did not happen that way. Uh, but mm. that, but what was my vision after college? I was scared. I was like, "What's next?" My goal was law school. That's what I wanted to do next. I thought that I would immediately. I was studying for it. It's like we create our own fears. We create our own roadblocks. We create all of these things that we just, that are not really true or real. So I gave myself my own anxiety about like the LSAT test and will I get a great score? Will, will, what, will I get into the top school? And that was what I was thinking. That's what I wanted to do. But that's not what 
my where my journey led me. I ended up right after college. It took a while for me to get employment. Um, I actually was writing everybody and calling everybody's offices. Like I'm at this point, I'm willing to just volunteer. I'm willing to just intern. Like you don't even have to pay me. But once these people can see what I can do, then they'll see my value. That was my mentality. Instead okay. of just just jumping in and doing my thing, I really didn't need anyone's permission to do community work. I didn't. I didn't need to put these barriers. I told myself, like, I got to do this in order to do that. Like, those were all so unreal. Now that I, now I'm older, looking back, you know, I acknowledge I put some, a lot of barriers on myself that were, mm-hmm. that you know, I didn't, no one else did that but myself. So, and I also didn't need those things to be impactful. So I just took a step back. I started working for a nonprofit organization in Brooklyn. And I was a case manager, a caseworker there. So I was kind of doing like social work. And that was at the end of 2011. So I missed the whole, I think that was when Bloomberg was mayor. I missed that entire administration. I, I wasn't involved locally at all. Like all of it was new. And I didn't know how to get in. Like I didn't know how to... Who is the person I speak to to get involved in politics or in government? Now, I've started reaching out to my local elected officials, but, you know, they already have their staff. So, I mean, I just Hmm. took a different turn and it was became a case manager. And while I was a case manager, my case notes would go from helping people get food stamps, helping people making referrals to individual counseling therapy to me helping, uh, at the time, charter schools were becoming a big thing. And a lot of the public schools were getting upset. They felt as though they were being displaced because charter schools were just coming into their space and they came to the agency looking for some advocacy, lawyers, support, and helping like make sure that they could keep their jobs. And So that's kind of how I started like working with the union and getting a sense of like, you all have reps, your reps can help you, you know, just understanding a new form of institutions, right? Like, so now here is where I'm, I'm leaving the deep South and I'm coming to the North and I'm seeing all of these barriers and institutions for people. I thought our system was much more advanced than, you know, where I was in the South at least. And it is to a degree, but there are still some loopholes and barriers in the system and working on that ground level and assisting people, everyday New Yorkers in need, I realized that, like, wow, this has to change. Policy has to change. And that year, 2011, my caseload went from little miscellaneous things like making referrals to people needing shelter. And I didn't know what was going on, but it was like hundreds of people coming in to the system. And what I, what I learned now in doing this job was they did away with a voucher system called Advantage. So when the city cut that, that thrusted thousands into the system. Also, you had landlords doing shady things like, you know, all the main beam is cracked and everybody has to evacuate and you can come back when it's fixed and people come back and there's <laughs> lots changed. And, you know, so there was no right to counsel at that time. And me doing this work that I do now City Council, you know, advocated for a bill for everyone to have the right to have access to counsel. When I was doing that work, that didn't exist. So I was trying to connect people to legal aid and 
you know, if you didn't have money, you couldn't really afford to pay for a lawyer. So you just cut your losses and I'm just going to go to shelter and start all over again and try to find another home. Wow. Yeah. That's so heartbreaking. Like, it is. And, and that's also like the tail end. I think it's right outside of the, the, the recession that we went through, but it's still on the tail end of that. Right. So I feel like it's, you know, folks were already going through a couple of years of hard times and now seeing the value of policies now working in your favor and new laws being passed and things being put in place that are beyond your control, but now have a real impact in whether you and your family can stay in your home. Right. Right. And the community that I served in, in Bushwick was predominantly Blacks and Latinos, more so Latinos. So that's where I saw a lot of like language barriers and systems. From, so from a different lens and doing the work. So I just thought that we were at a place to have these things at like place, whether it be language lines. And, and at the time, it wasn't there. <laughs> so, you know, after that, I just kept writing on my vision board that my next job has to be a position where I'm like advocating for people, but also making shifts in policies or maybe it's policy work that I need to do next, but I'm, I'm done with doing this. I didn't feel that effective in the space as a case manager, although I appreciated having a job, but I realized like there's obviously this bigger thing, this bigger system that needs more people who understand where it's flawed to be in a different space to advocate and make these changes. And Yeah. And part of that comes with your experience as a case manager, right? Like seeing where the challenges are and having the experience of, okay, now there's hundreds of people that are just homeless, like what's going on? And then understanding where that stems from to then feel like, okay, next move, I want to try to impact that change somehow. So what happens next? What did you end up doing? So from there, I was working with a girl who was just interning for me. She had an aunt that worked at the Department of Education. And that case management job really overwhelmed me. So I just like walked away. I didn't just walk away. Like I, I, I left. It was overwhelming. Unfortunate horror stories I have of just bad management. And so I realized, though, in that space that I had a gift, that I had talents. Um, and I'm going to take my talents down to South Beach. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, really. The, the, the place where I was working became very toxic and it had nothing to do with, I loved my, I loved my clients. The thing with the, with that space was that like, they were more driven about outcomes, achieving outcomes, even if they were not really achieved. So it wasn't, it, for me, it was like, there's a difference between quality service and actually helping somebody. And it's just, but they were more quantity driven. They were like, because that's just how some nonprofits work. Like it's about me showing metrics wise, proving that we get these clients, we achieve them, we close it out, we were successful. But that's my measurement of success morally looked different because, you know, I'm working with these clients and I didn't really get them to the finish line, but I have to close them out. So mm-hmm. I left that space and the girl, the young lady who interned for me had an aunt that was looking for temps. So I became a temp at the Department of Education. And my role there was to be support so many moons ago, but I basically be in the meeting with this woman who was in a leadership role. She oversaw initiatives 
uh, initiatives uh, for the Department of Education. And I would be in a room with her taking notes and we'd go back and brainstorm. I would basically draft a proposal or like I'd create a proposal that she can then pitch to see in which way DOE could actually work with these groups that we were meeting with and what community can we like implement this effort in or what school could we roll this out. So that was my role there. And it was uh, an eye opener. It was a really amazing experience, but I knew that I was a temp and that the the clock was ticking before. <laughs> I, don't, I didn't know what the deadline would be or the cutoff. So I was like the squeaky wheel gets the oil, like always asking like questions. I asked a lot of questions. Um, what new initiatives are coming out? I learned about a mayoral initiative, pre-K for all. I heard about it, wasn't clear about what it was, but I got information about the program and I found out they had an outreach team. Um, and so like I emailed people. I was very proactive. And I got feedback. Folks were looking for the pre-K outreach team was looking for a Manhattan outreach uh, worker. And so I applied. I got immediately uh, pinged back. I interviewed. They loved me. I got it. But I still was a temp. Still was a temp. And after a month or two, I think that they really saw my energy, liked me, and brought me online to be permanent. And so I started outreaching in the borough of New York. I'm in Manhattan, but then specifically my turf was Northern Manhattan. Although I worked worked throughout the entire borough, my focus, my catchment area as the team grew and got bigger was Northern Manhattan. So I covered like Washington Heights, East Harlem, Central Harlem, West Side of Harlem, and part like of Upper West Side and parts of Upper East Side. And I was very strategic with my outreach. If this initiative was to target marginalized children, then my mentality was, well, let's go to where children in the city live. Like, let's be very targeted. And working in that capacity, we, you know, made some linkages with uh, leadership in in NYCHA. This was like a game changer. They gave us data of like children born in a year that was eligible for pre-K. So that helped in each NYCHA development. So that helped us be more strategic in our outreach to find like the children that are eligible. And in doing targeted outreach, I I was able to double enrollment in Harlem, in particular East Harlem. I'm hoping at this point it's now taking its own course and people just know about it and know to apply. But at the time it was a new initiative. So doing that outreach work felt good because one, I'm advocating, right? I'm advocating I'm on the ground still. I'm now again in my community, like I said I wanted to do when I left college. So now I'm in my community. I'm meeting people. I'm meeting leaders. I'm meeting elected officials. It just felt, this is a feel-good initiative. Who doesn't like pre-K? It's a very different sell from shelter. (laughs) Everybody loves pre-K. So that work felt really good to do. And I also felt like I was getting reintroduced to my city. There were parts of like the borough of Manhattan, even Washington Heights that I, I just never explored. So that in doing that work, I just felt like I was kind of remarrying the city again and just like, oh, my God, falling in love with beautiful parts of the, the borough. I think a theme that I'm seeing is that you're very intentional with what you want to do. Right. So like you find yourself in situations where experiences lead you to your next moment and you're like, all right, I'm going to pursue that. Right. So I'm right. home. 
I'm going to email every elected official. Okay, that didn't work out, but now I'm going to go get this other job. Then from there, if management or if, you know, the organization that you're in, you felt like was hindering the impact that you wanted to have, you're like, great, I'm going to find a way to still align myself with this type of mission in another capacity, which is part of owning your career, right? Like you need to be able to identify those moments where you're like, okay, it's not necessarily me. It's not necessarily this organization. I think the organization as a whole is doing great. This is just not the fit for me at this time. Let me go do something else. And then to be in a temporary role and saying, great, I need to secure a job. (laughs) So let me figure out ways to contact people that are doing this or or that are going to be part of a team that are going to do this long term. And you do that, right? So I I feel like it's great to see that you're owning your career at different points and that you're able to get to a point now, or at least at this point in, in your story, in your career, where you're having the impact that you wanted to have. It just took some years and some time to get there. But it sounded like ultimately you got to that point. And I remember seeing you at some of these community board meetings, right? Where you're yeah. here advocating for this thing. And even at the time, I feel like at the time, I already knew by that time what pre-K for all was, but it was still relatively a new concept, right? So it's yeah. like, uh, oh, oh yeah, I've heard of that thing. That's that's cool. But like to see the team on the on the ground going to community board meetings and letting people know, hey, we're doing this thing. It's coming to schools near you. Let's make sure we sign up your kids. Like that's a whole thing. So right. it's, it's, it's really great to see how kind of you were able to graduate and get to a point where you are now having the impact um, that you wanted to have at that time. Right. And, and not only that, being a young city worker, there was a, a woman I will never forget. Her name is Marva. She took me literally by the hand and walked me to my union hall, DC 37. And she said, this is your union. Make sure you fill out your blue card and you get familiar with the benefits and all the things that you are eligible for. And I had no knowledge about the union. And so that's another introductory of me getting acquainted as a city worker, but also like acquainted with another universe that exists that's attached to me having a job that represents me and learning about the works of the union. For example, I didn't know that I wasn't automatically enrolled in my pension. I assume that I have a city job. My parents are retired city workers. So, you know, I know they have a pension, a really nice pension. I thought that I'm good now. I'm set. Had no idea that I had to enroll myself. So I went a whole year not being enrolled in the pension until like my union made it an issue. And they were like, I don't think that, uh, did, are you enrolled? Did you enroll in your, and then they started this initiative. It was my former local, local 372. Uh, and they were advocating for automatic pension enrollment because they had retirees at the age, like 80 retiring, assuming that they would be retiring with a pension, but they never vested. Wow. It. So this, that's heartbreaking. This it's very heartbreaking. It's very heartbreaking because you meet people and, you know, one of the things is like, oh, I work for the city and I'm working towards my pension. And you don't think about these things. But I know people that have been working in city government and have chosen to not opt into the pension for whatever reason. I'm like, okay, great. That's your prerogative if you feel like you're not going to be there long enough to whatever. But the concept of working your whole life and not (laughs) knowing that you were not going to receive the 
you know, probably the main benefit that you were hoping for? It's tragic. I mean, and and so that experience, they asked me to like speak when they had like a little rally in front of City Hall and they had like basically people representing the issue, like people like myself who was impacted by that. But I'm young. So I was able to capture it, but like, what about the the el- the the ones who put in the work, put in the time, who didn't know any better? And so that really opened up my eyes even more to the different issues that impact workers. It exposed me to another space where I can be expressive and again and and advocate for workers. Got it. How long did you do that job for? I did pre-K for about, I think, like two to three years. Maybe it was two and a half years. Why'd you end up switching out of that? So in doing that work, again, it's like there's moments in my life where there's like a a tug. And when I ignore it, it gets more aggressive. (laughs) It gets more disruptive. And, and, And I mean that not literally, but figuratively speaking, where... It's becoming more and more clear that I have to shift now. Like now is the way my life has just been operating. It's like you said it right earlier that there's, it's a journey. And as I'm on the journey, there's this new, maybe it's not new, but it's a new route that opens up in my mind or it literally in my space where it's just like, well, maybe explore this. And it's like this ah, gold light that opens up. I'm so dramatic, but that's how it operates for me. That's how my life has been flowing. And so, you know, an opportunity presented itself that seemed too big for me. Like, I didn't think that I could do that. And when I felt like that, I knew that I should go for it. And so, you know, I just was still meditated, prayed, and was like, should I, should I make this leap? Like, what if it's, what if it's horrible? What if it's, what if it's too hard? What if I can't do it? And, you know, I just was like, you know what, what's the worst that can happen? Let me at least interview. Uh, And so I interviewed for this role, the Department of Social Services. I knew that the issue itself was heavy homelessness in New York City. I knew that there was this new mayoral initiative turning the tide and I was reading up on it and the way I look at life is like these little pieces that all connect. Like right in the beginning, I have this little basket in my room and at every New Year's, every New Year, I write out just things I want to achieve. I want to come to fruition in my life and I throw it in the basket and I always keep them. And one of the things was one, I wanted to do a job where I'd be advocating for people in the borough of Manhattan. I said I wanted to be in a space where I'd be advocating policy, but good policy that I believed in on behalf of people who can't speak for themselves. And also that, like the biggest thing is that I want to be a a mouthpiece, a, a, a voice for those who cannot speak up for themselves or are not in a space to do it or just don't have the know how to do it. So I always knew that whatever work I did, it had to have those components in it. And everything with this job had those components in it and then some. It was just on a scale, on a level that I didn't think that at the time I was ready for, you know, to just be one borough director representing the entire borough meant that I would have to be the face, the voice for community boards one through 12 
and every community looked different. And I just created um, helpful tools for myself to know, which I think is an art and a gift. If you know how to kind of tailor your language and your conversations to make it connect with people, because, you know, everybody isn't one size fit all. You have your messaging is the same message in the end, but the way you're conveying it has to be a way that folks can receive it. So some communities might be data-driven. They might want to hear numbers. One community Mm -hmm. might be more about, they want to hear the narrative of the issues. And so I liked the, it felt almost like performing arts. (laughs) It felt like all of it tied in together for me with this work. Like everything that I've ever experienced up to this very moment prepared me for this moment. And, you know, once they told me I had the job, I had to tell myself that, like, you're prepared. You're prepared. It's foreign territory. You don't know much about it, but you've been sharpened. Every experience you've had has sharpened you, has prepared you for this moment. You just have to just mentally believe that. And that environment and that job was very, in all the jobs, I would say, because these were all new initiatives that were coming out of the mayor's office. Another one that I worked on was the NYC Men Teach initiative through pre-K for all. They they allowed us to split and help other initiatives that were getting off the ground. And so that was under the umbrella of Department of Education. So we, in that initiative, NYC Men Teach, they were trying to get more men of color to be inspired to become teachers and, you know, maybe transition into a different career path. So in just doing all of that work, really prepared me for the space I'm in now. And in this awful circle, now I'm talking to you, I'm like, wow, yeah, all the, all the dots connect. It's, it's full circle. And then everything kind of aligns. As long as I can stay true to myself in spaces and be me and be the vocal Leilani that I am, and also to allow, to have people embrace that rawness about me and my personality, it works and it's helpful because we think it's important for us as young, intelligent, bright, black and brown people to be like in spaces that we can feel comfortable to know that we can take up space. Like this too is our space and perhaps there may be something that we're overlooking. And, and if that is the case, to be comfortable to, to say it, to be comfortable to articulate the issues and views in a way that others might have not captured or was not thinking of. And so, you know, I'm grateful to be in a space that has allowed me to be free in that way. And I'm very intentional about that too. Um, like with anything, it doesn't happen immediately, right? But it, you, you know, growing pains, you go through things, you get to a place where it's working relationships. Everybody just gets to learn and know how others think, how they feel. And being in that type of environment, a a supportive environment matters. You know, the work we're doing is real emotional, heavy work. And so when you come home to like to, to, to your place of employment, like you, we have to be each other's cheerleaders. The day is done. You had a rough meeting. Like you go back and you, you know, I look to my colleagues who are all women, by the way, Uh, all the borough directors are all women who are leading in their respective boroughs, they're all women. And so it just feels good to come to a space where you, where each other's cheerleaders and support system. Great. So, because I, I think you, you framed it really well, right? Which is you bring such a, 
perspective and that's part of the importance of having a person like you in this role but you also mentioned like you have to then be in the trenches and work with your colleagues and really be each other's cheerleaders right so like help me understand for those that don't know um what does your day or week look like in your job right because it sounds like you're a voice for a lot of different communities and you are this liaison right which is like all right this elected official wants this the chair of the community board wants this the agency's trying to do this let's make sure everyone's talking and that it all works out what does that look like for you as a in a day in a week are you in at 9 out at 5 huh. have a great day or like how does this look oh how much time you have to talk like <laughs> i'm going to try to be very concise yeah. as, as possible and just compact it all in a little box. Um, like when you walk in on Monday, what do your Monday look like? I never know what my, I, I always think I, today's going to be still. It's going to be like no fires. It's going to happen today. Wow. It's, it's really busy. I mean, the system is dynamic. The Department of Homeless Services, and then you have HRA. You know, like right now, I can just speak for the moment now with COVID. When COVID unleashed on us i thought for some reason that the workload would slow down no total total opposite now that all these meetings are virtual my day isn't nine to five most of the, most of the time it's really been like late evenings honoring meetings again it's just you know one board director so i i always want to make sure that i'm we don't say no to meetings we do but like bandwidth right like i want to make sure i'm being responsive as much as possible to communities and so with everything being virtual kind of has allowed maybe room for others to be a part of discussions that maybe if we weren't doing this virtually wouldn't maybe always be as broad and big these meetings but now that everything is virtual it now kind of allows room for us for folks and communities to invite others to discussions and conversations who maybe this would be the very first time they ever heard from me even though I go to all community board meetings and like so a lot of this a lot of my dialogues and discussions are pretty much the same everywhere but a lot of like me educating folks on the issue or me explaining policy decisions and those are oftentimes very contentious conversations and so those are really you know some meetings are good some meetings i walk away feeling like okay i think folks heard us i think they understand and there's there's times where a lot of unfortunate things are said about our clients you know there's unfortunate moments where you find yourself trying to balance like not personalizing and internalizing what's being said to now convey what the message of like the agency's response in a way where you're not being emotional but you're being like very logic based i feel like i've come to master how to insert the passion but also be very come from a place of like listen let's level set cuz obviously the stigmas and stereotypes that's being said are just false and just feeling okay to take that moment to educate and not be offended. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like to yeah. capitalize off those moments to inform. And yeah. and when I do take those moments to do that, oftentimes the dialogue shifts in more in a more positive direction. 
then you have some people who just feel how they feel and they don't they don't care. Yeah, um, it's a tough predicament for yeah, especially for a black woman doing this work, and and a lot of conversations in a lot of intergovernmental affairs type of work. I think when you go to different community boards and you get different reactions, right, and different conversations that may have racial undertones, and you're like, wait what are we talking about right now? And like folks are just not receptive to the information that you're giving them for sometimes very different reasons. Like something right. that has nothing to do with you, your project or anything, but more about around their experiences or their personal issues that you're not going to solve in that, in that meeting. Right. And then that part, like, right. Like poverty is real. Homelessness has been an issue before I was born. Like, there's no magic wand that we can wave to make it disappear. And when you really pull the layers back, it's systemic racism and 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 system. There's a lot of barriers and roadblocks when you really assess the root of the issue from education, who has access to it, like lending, credit scores. When you go for an apartment, they do a credit background check. Like, there's a lot of things at play here. You know, our clients also experience discrimination sometimes because they have a voucher. You know, and so then the agency creates an arm where they advocate for source of income discrimination units. We're creating, right? Like, thank God for that. <laughs> but that that's what people don't see, right? So those are yeah. the other parts, the moving parts that people don't see that are very real. Yeah. And, and this is also New York City where we are, I think, very much ahead of a lot of other cities throughout the country right. uh, in addressing these issues, right? So there are a lot of municipalities that I'm sure don't have these services in place and don't have a team to even address these issues, right? And it's just, right. there's right. homelessness, enforce it, make sure that they're not in the street, take them to a shelter or something like that, but more like understanding the humanity and the programs that can be in place and the different policies that can be shaped to actually address the issues. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of room for improvement in New York City, period, across the board. But I do think when it comes to, to at least thinking about these issues and trying to address them, I think, you know, it, I'd be hard pressed to say that we're not a ways ahead of, of other cities across the country. Right? That's right. 100% right. Like, I have to remind people all the time, like, did you know, like, New York City's a right to shelter city? A lot of people don't know that. Like, yeah, if you, if you were in L.A., Skid Row is called, like, they have, like, 10 cities. It, it would look like that here had we not had certain things in place for, you know, displaced New Yorkers. So we, we're a right to shelter city. So we have to make sure we have beds for folks coming into the system. People don't know that, mm -hmm. that, 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 that we must provide temporary emergency shelter for you should you come into our system in need. Um, and I think that's a beautiful thing. And just really talking about that work, explaining it, um, and all the many depths and different levels, layers to it, I think people walk away with a better understanding. All right. Yeah. So now doing this job, what can a future role for you look like? If someone's looking at this and saying, wow, I definitely want to do exactly what Leilani's doing. But by the time they get there, Leilani's doing something else. What can that look like for, like, what types of doors can be open based on your experiences? Um, I feel like this, well, that's a good question. I, I mean, someone, a young man, a young woman listening to me, this role is 
like if you've ever played Mortal Kombat and like you mastered, you get to that level, of the, the, the tough challenger, like this is that level. You know, every day is different. You ask me about my day to day. Every day is different. So nothing about the work is like scripted and you're talking from this one script all the time. Um, you have to know how to be fluid uh, and flexible and you have to have a good read on people and spaces and also pay attention to the politics that's happening in every community district because all of that also plays a role in the work sometimes. And so you have to be cognizant and mindful of that. What I would say is this role is a managerial role in a sense. Like I can leave this space and lead a team. I could leave this space and lead an agency. I could Leave this, leave this space and go into policy. We sit in rooms with our legislative team. And so there is that exposure to understanding how uh, policies are, you know, written and, and what work goes into having like elected officials understand what the agency's needs are when it comes to bills. You know, we have hearings. So observing that, it's just, I think I can go into almost any space uh, as it relates to city government, but I would say sky's the limit, honestly. You can be this folks who's left the team and their chiefs of staffs to elected officials. We have a colleague who left who's now leading um, like the Girl Scouts, a nonprofit organization. Uh, so this is a space where you can leave and be in a position of uh, leadership, whether that means that you're like, VP or president of an organization. This is a space that has sharpened me on so many levels. Just when I think I got a handle on something and I found my groove, it's like another wrench was thrown into the to the bucket and all the water splashes out. And like now you're trying to figure out how to be a critical thinker in this moment and like be be effective. But you know, so my critical thinking skills has been sharpened. And those are all ingredients you need to lead. You know, to be in a room where you're not quite sure what is going to be said, or you just have to know how to be sharp and tactful. There's so, and those skills I pick up too from communities and, and leaders and communities, just like it's forever learning the job or how they how what their approach is and what works, different approaches, communication approaches and no, these are all the things that you need to be a better leader and to have the ability to work across the entire borough. I'm able to analyze so many different leaders and take skills and take different things that I think I could apply to the work in myself professionally. So, yeah, I think I wouldn't say I feel like you can leave this space and lead in any space. This is a trench work. This is a space where you're sharpened to catapult yourself to a higher level. Like a leadership training ground of sorts. Yeah, it is. Feels like boot camp sometimes. Um, Got it. Um, do you have any books or resources that you think have shaped you uh, personally or, or professionally that you that you would like the world to know? The world. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This is worldwide. We have a oh, massive audience. Everybody. Massive audience. Massive. I believe you. Several. One one book is called The Color of Law. 
it's a good book. It breaks down policies, how federal government um, intentionally created policies that discriminated against Black freed slaves at the time. Um, so how these policies were drafted and created to um, restrict Blacks from borrowing from banks, how redlining was created, how realtors were reprimanded if they ever sold property or house to a Black person, how they would be put on the Blacklist, Blackballed, they won't get listings. Like um, These were actual federal laws on the books that were intentionally created and designed to keep people oppressed or to keep people out of being a part of the American dream. And this is real research. He breaks it down from the beginning of time to where we are in present date. Um, so it's a really powerful mm -hmm. book. And um, a woman that I worked with suggested that I read that to have a better understanding of the work and what I'm doing, which goes back to this is all systemic and we're all trying to, we're trying to undo it. Uh, so that was a really good book, The Color of Law. There's Another book, this is not pertaining to work, it's just like life. Asada Shakur, Autobiography of Asada Shakur, is a powerful book to read. That really shifted my, I think that's where like, I was like, I knew, like advocacy is what, I'm on the right path. Like her story and how much of a fighter she was, and just her thoughts of, of being a young Black woman in a movement and being pregnant in prison. They put her in a men's facility, a men's a male prison. You know, the torture, the getting beat up and abused. And fast forward, you still see the torture being filmed and injustice still plays out. You see how important that movement was at that time period. So that, that's a time period piece that impacted me um, as, a, as a Black woman. Uh, so that, that, I would say, the autobiography of Asada Shakur, autobiography of Malcolm X, would say anything and all things James Baldwin, all of his novels. He's just a brilliant thinker. Um, and the way he articulates and expresses his thoughts and the way he spells his thoughts is like, so ill because it's just so easy to absorb it and like really understand it and it's sad how applicable his messaging was then now like i can play a speech of his now and i feel like he's talking to the generation now so on any all all of james baldwin books but my favorite authors zora neale hurston james baldwin octavia butler who's like a black science fiction author 1984 is a favorite by George Orwell. Any book that kind of captures real issues happening in, in the world and, and ties it to a theory that I align myself with, those are the types mm -hmm. of books I like to read. That, There's another book. That raises that, consciousness. Yes, that raises consciousness. That's right. There's another book that says you say more than you, you think. And it's a book about body language how we say more than what we think we're actually saying. There's actually skilled people that are trained to just read people's body language. You know, I learned about the book going to a women's conference of my union and uh, the author, she spoke and just was 
showing you different examples of body language and postures of the world's most powerful people. And I started applying those postures and those body language movements in my actual professional life. And I noticed a difference. Uh, So it's a really good book. It's called You Say More Than You Speak. And another book called Knowing Your Value by Mika. Mika is on Good Morning Joe. If you ever watch MSNBC in the morning, Mika. Yeah, and it's a book about a woman knowing their value when it's time to negotiate higher salaries. She had real data and studies that showed like women are less likely to advocate for the cap or the most money. We are, when we take care of the home or even the family, we're very amenable. But when it comes to professional work settings, it's just a book about like women should really take, don't be afraid to ask for what your value is. You are valuable. You have valuable tools and things to offer spaces, institutions to make other people great. And if that is the case, then know your value and and, and don't be afraid to ask for what it is that you want. Uh, so that book did a lot for me as a young professional and as a woman. That's great. That's a great list. Thank yeah. You. Yeah. yeah. Good. And I'm sure there's okay. others, but I'm just going to leave it at that. All right. Is there anything else that we haven't spoken about that everyone should know about? Everybody should know about me. I don't know, Raddy. Did I say anything that you think that, like, you, you, you know me? I think you've surpassed all my expectations for this conversation. I think you are still the same expressive person that I've met when I was 15, just in a more mature, articulate, professional manner. And now with coupled with a bunch of experiences and a bunch of knowledge that you've accrued over the last x amount of years we're not gonna give away our age right here but i feel like it's uh, it's just fascinating oh to, to to see folks grow that we know that we have known for so long like i've known you for more than half of my life now right and but now yeah. seeing you be at, at this point of leadership where you're advocating for people is just it's not surprising because I think you mentioned it earlier, like a lot of our peers that went to high school with us are doing amazing things in their own paths. Uh, so it's certainly not surprising, but it's it's just humbling and amazing to see them. And it's always like, we're doing that. That's great. Like people that I know are doing great things. Thank you, Raddy. And same to you. Same to you. I, I remember being in a meeting like, is, that's Raddy who's about to get on this <laughs> stage with a mic with all these electives. Okay, Raddy, I see you, Raddy. And just to you, be in that you, space to share it was amazing. Yeah, so you say that, uh, but you were the following presentation after me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's also that part. Um, I know, but, it was, certainly, but, but it's, it's, it still was like, wow, look at, look at how life is full circle. Like we're both in this shared space, being powerful on our yeah. own squares. Um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like I, I covered it all about myself, I, with the exception of I'm very silly. You know, I'm a writer. I'm still invested in the arts. And so okay. I'm exploring writing and producing. What type of writing? Screenplay. Love it. Yeah, yeah. Love it. Yeah, yeah, Oh, yeah. we should talk. Yeah. Okay, we should talk off, off mic. We yeah. should talk on some more things. Absolutely. And also looking okay. to do more film, filming. 
Okay. Because because there's a okay. space right now where with technology and where we are right now, I feel like there's a, an, um, an amazing opportunity right now for us to start narrating and telling our own stories. Absolutely. In this moment of COVID and all that's been happening, it's like work has been very consuming, but I had to get back to a balance with like, I have multiple passions, but you know, also like balancing like what feeds me, what fuels me, what keeps me going in life. And the mm-hmm. arts will always be that component. So I started writing. Okay. Yeah. What does your shirt say? See? People's food program. Free Even food program. Yeah. You know, Panther shirt. I've always been very fond of the initiatives that they brought towards the people. And I think they, for some reason, get a bad rap. But, you know, the, the reason why we have free school lunches right now derives directly from their programs. Right. So, there you, you know, go. and a lot of it. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think media at the time played a big role in putting them as anti-police and just as, you know, I think it's easier to understand in the context that we are now where it's it's not anti-police, it's anti-police brutality. And living through it now, 60 years later, is like, wait, you guys didn't get this concept 60 years ago? Like, we're still telling you the same thing. Police serves a purpose. That's great. Just stop beating us up, bro. Stop killing right. us. <laughs> right, right. And it's interesting... <laughs> And it's interesting how history then vindicates those people. Like after a while, then it's like, oh, we're going to now acknowledge Martin Luther King. We're going to acknowledge Malcolm X. We're going to acknowledge some people in those movements. And it's like, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm hoping that history will vindicate the the folks in the movement and the Panther Party as well. Yeah, I I think those that know, know. Um, the, The challenge becomes when folks that are writing history books acknowledge things. Like I think especially now there's so much information out there that if you want to get access to this information or if you want to just see things from a different perspective you can the challenge is we are not brought up in a system that teaches accurate history or or history from different perspectives you know i think and that's one of my biggest challenges with education but that's a whole nother conversation i think right you know i think education itself is so especially american history is so flawed in that you know it's slavery civil rights movement we solved racism and it's like wait there's no it's no black people nowhere in between that or nowhere like any okay that's that's what happened cool okay right but, which that. would make sense which which would make sense if racism was solved but it's not right. <laughs> so like right like like right. Nah, i'm pretty sure black people are here when you were trying to invent electricity don't you think it's dope though that now like it's sad that it took the George Floyd situation for everybody to be at home quarantining and watching this play out that it kind of like you ever hit the brakes real hard on the car and everybody kind of like, you know, Absolutely. has a reaction that it kind of forced everybody to say, oh, my God, yes, we have a problem. And I find that yep. what's happening now, what's interesting to me is corporations, the attention that corporations, like people taking a stand in their places yep. of employment in large corporations or even athletes with their powerful platform to Mm -hmm. to take a stance. I'm interested to see how all of that will continue to like play out. But I just think it's interesting to see what role corporations have these checks that they're writing 
Black Lives Matter, and then like their employees are circling back, like that's not good enough. Like, absolutely, we need to see absolutely. in the boardroom. We need to see, absolutely. like, if you really are serious about the issue, then we need to see yep. equity on every level in your corporation, in your institutions. Yeah, and not just when it's the hot topic, right? Like, it's very right. easy to be so have a PR moment where you look great on camera because the right. moment spot is spotlighting that a year and a half from now, when that's no longer the hot topic, how are you treating people that look like me in your workplace? Like, how does that actually look like? And I, and I think I will say for what it's worth, I think I'm fortunate enough to be in an institution that is very mindful of that and is very much implementing equity working groups internally to figure out how do we address the issues of what we look like internally and the work that we're wow. doing externally, right? Wow, that's so I think, dope. Absolutely. So I, I think, you know, I think there are some places of employment that are really taking this seriously and are, yeah. are very much not caught up in the, I think you have to be caught up in the moment of like, what can we do to look good right now? But I right. think there are organizations that are taking it a step further which say, in saying, all right, how do we implement systems internally that will help guide this organization for the next decade or so going further. I think it's early. I think, you know, but I do think at least at my employment place, I think where folks are taking the right steps to pull the mirror up and try to try to address some of these issues. Yeah. I think there's shifts happening everywhere. Shifts. Yeah. I'm seeing some Absolutely. positive shifts. Yeah. Yep. The, the people are fed up. Yeah. Yeah. Doing like groundwork and advocacy work and protesting in college and and and, and after college is something different about this one, this time. Yeah, there's something yep. different about this time, and I think I didn't mention this at all. Actually, um, NAACP. I do a lot of work with NAACP, a Mid Manhattan branch to be specific, and there I'm the civic engagement chair, and. Mm. Um, Doing, doing, you know, there's a hashtag that they have. It's, 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 they say we are done dying, and mm. I, and behind that, there's just different like platforms and initiatives around like economics. Like, you know, we need to like obviously, but you can't have these conversations about race and not focus on like what does black economics look like for black and brown people. Education. Mm. I think we're really drilling down to those issues, but we can't do anything unless people are coming out to vote for people who can help push these policies, help us reform. What I think was happening now is that a lot of people who are not civically engaged or was not paying attention are now paying attention, which tells yeah. me people are like, people are ready, but I'm hoping that I see that again when it comes time to vote for the House, when it comes time to vote for the Senate, when it comes time to vote for your city council, assembly, mm. governor, yep. mayor. I, I, and I believe that the, I think the, the tempo is about to speed up and I think we're going to continue to see this rhythm. What's your involvement with the NAACP? Uh, is that part of your job or is that something else? No, that's separate. So NAACP, it's not part of my job. It's a volunteer. Everything I do in that capacity is all volunteerism. So as civic engagement chair, my responsibility is to ensure all year round that I'm civically engaging the community. And the way we do that is through non-traditional civic engagement efforts. You know, non-traditional meaning like I'm a child of hip hop. That's the culture. They have 
massive influence. So a lot of the things that I've done as it relates to events is to work with artists, famous people that people know, to get out messages, to promote awareness, um, not just about voting, but just local issues, issues that's happening locally in your community, working with local groups, local community organizations and their youth and, you know, maybe even adults with engaging them, really just meeting people where they're at. That's my style. Like everybody, it's not a one size fit all outreach. You can't talk to this person the same way you would talk to this person. Like, And the ones who are disengaged is who I am the most interested in trying to engage. And that's my focus. Like, you don't care? Good. Okay, that's, that's my audience. The I don't care is my audience. So Got it. I, that's where okay. I try to do a lot of non-traditional engagements and meeting them where they are, whatever their interest is. And you find that they do care. You find that they, they care the most. It's just that they don't understand the process on average. They don't understand the process or the functions of government and the way in which things work. You know, so just explaining that, like, yes, you can have a Black president and you feel like your condition hasn't changed. But then you got to understand that, like, electing the president was good, but then we also had to go back and vote for the House and the Senate. So all these great ideas and bills he had and wanted to pass, he couldn't, right? Like to explain that and like yeah. what that means on the local level when you vote for your senator, you know? Mm-hmm. So just breaking it down like that, you see a light bulb go off. It, it's hard work. It's hard to try to continue to engage someone who doesn't want to be engaged. But that's what's necessary at this moment in time. Somebody has to, somebody has to do it. Somebody has to be engaging our people on every level. The ones that are engaged, the ones not engaged. So, you know, we do a lot of that type of work. And civic engagement covers everything. Any issue falls under the umbrella of civic engagement, housing, education. So, you know, these big issues I can, you know, create an event or uh, outreach effort to get out the word about an issue. Like, you know, in the past, the branch had panel discussions about charter school versus public schools, like trying to get an understanding on like, what is the difference, how it functions, how it works, inviting, you know, the professionals to come to the community to explain it. Um, So I I do that in that capacity. Okay, that's helpful. Uh, so thank you for joining us today. Uh, this has been a great conversation. It is great to catch up and to hear about your journey and, uh, you know, how you've been able to navigate and, and grow professionally. So I appreciate you joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I just I just have to capitalize off the moment and just say how nostalgic this feels like to to know you at like 16, 17 years old, and to see you now and to see what you've done with this platform is amazing and important because um, I think a lot of times people only wait to hear people's stories once they've like achieved the most ultimate, like greatest thing. And that's how we define success. Once you've reached your ultimate level, then you're successful. And no one really hears oftentimes 
the the in between the process, like the voices that's still trying to figure it out, and like to hear the narratives of the people who you know are young but has a lot of way, a lot more ways to go, but also acknowledging that on our journey we have achieved some great things. And in talking to you, I kind of like I'm hearing myself say things that were dope things that I was able to achieve and do that maybe I wasn't in talking it out and talking it through with you. It's like, wow, that was, that was a dope thing or that was a big thing. Just thank you for creating this platform and this space. And I'm really, really proud of you, Ratty. I really am. I'm, I see you. I see you doing your thing. Only thing that's different is the beard and the fro, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, yeah. That's the only thing that's 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 different, but also just like, you know, you as a person, like you've been trying to get me to uh, come to the carpet a few times and I was anxious and nervous and I didn't feel ready. So but like really thank you for seeing me and, you know, always just being supportive to me. And the space is like very important and sacred ground. So thank you for allowing me to be a part of it. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Leilani.